Expectations are funny things. C.S. Lewis talks a little bit about this. Imagine my bedroom uh, growing up. I had green shag carpet, uh, just a nice single bed, a uh, dresser, very ordinary. I mean, we lived in a very ordinary house and very ordinary bedroom. Lewis says, you know, if we come to a room like that, and uh, we announce it as the honeymoon suite, you're going to walk in and say, well, we appreciate the twin bed. Uh, this is not exactly what we had in mind. I mean, this, this is a huge disappointment, a step down from what we were expecting, what we were imagining when you said, this is the honeymoon suite. On the other hand, if I tell you this is a jail cell, you're fairly... Well, all right. Well, this is okay. We got a nice bed. We got a dresser. We've got some decent carpet. We've got a window. You know, there's all sorts of expectations make a huge difference with regards to how we treat things. I think it's true as, to, uh, as well in terms of the church. I think many of you know that there is a huge sort of movement, especially among American Christians, uh, the exvangelical movement, uh, folks that are moving away from uh, the traditional church. They're finding community, spirituality, expressing that in other places. Um, on the other hand, uh, there have been folks like Malcolm Muggeridge, some of you know a little bit of his story coming from atheism, agnosticism to Christianity, who claim that the actual existence of the church, warts and all, is one of the greatest proofs for the existence of God. Uh, but again, I think it depends on expectations. If we are coming to a church and expecting it to be full of pristine, moral, upstanding people who don't make mistakes, then we're going to be tremendously disappointed and we are going to follow hashtag exvangelical. On the other hand, if we come to the church and we say, this is a church of people who have been saved by grace. This is a church full of people who are still working out their salvation with fear and trembling. This is a church uh, full of people who know the sentiment, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We're going to have a very different attitude towards the assembly that is gathered. And as we pick up the, the thought line in Philippians, I, I think we are invited into asking ourselves, you know, what are our expectations? And then how do we move forward in terms of living out life within the body of Christ that we call the church? I want to give you two notes just before we go further in their study this morning. The first note is this. I, you know, Philippians is the bumper sticker book, right? Uh, if you want a slogan, and I don't mean that in any demeaning way, but if you want a slogan, something to put on, a, you know, some fancy cursive and hang in your kitchen or your living room, uh, put it on the bumper sticker, all of these types of things, you can go to the book of Philippians. You can, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice always. Um, 
You know, I can do all things. Probably the most taken out of context verse in the entire Bible. You know, I can do all things. There's a couple of them here in this passage. I already referred to the rejoice uh, always. I'll say it again, rejoice. This is coming in context of what Paul is saying. And if we take it out of context, it's not that it ceases to have any meaning, but we, we lose the meaning that Paul is intended to it. The same thing is true, you know, do not be anxious about anything. Um, as Bob alluded to, you, we live in a time where anxiety is, is much thought of. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Uh, we, we're anxious about our anxiety. Um, and there is, uh, you know, we, we think about it. And so we can just, you know, take a verse like, do not be anxious about anything and, you know, slap a slogan on it. Uh, try to, to apply it. And, and this is really my second note. I just want to be really careful uh, to not do that. This morning, I want to look at these verses in context, you know, hear what Paul is saying, because what Paul is saying is certainly not meant to induce more anxiety because you feel anxious, Uh, you know, to beat you down. Paul is very much inviting people into a, a way of being that knows the the peace of Christ. So let's see if we can walk our way through this and understand it a a little bit more. Basic idea here is that you can see the three points kind of make a sentence. A unifying purpose requires transformational uh, practice and is ultimately upheld in protective Promises. So that's where we're going to go here this morning. Let's start with this uh, unifying purpose. What, what is the unifying purpose that Paul is calling for here? And this section of Philippians, the letter, very much mirrors the section uh, goes from 127 to 211. So if you want to do a nice little exercise, you can take 127 to 211, and then you can take three, where we were last week, you can take 317 to 49, and you'll see a lot of Uh, a lot of similarities of thought in the way that Paul is progressing it with the Philippians. But you remember there's conflict in the church. There's conflict that that Paul is very sad about. There is conflict that he is calling them to agree in the Lord. Let, you know, have this mind among you, as he says in Philippians chapter 2, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It, It is very important that the church, uh, that the church express this idea of unity. There's a couple of reasons for this. You know, one you see in verse one. Uh, you know, Paul just loves his people. He he loves these folks that he's been given charge to, and he wants them to enjoy. You know, when you're at conflict, it's not fun. And Paul says, you know, those who I, I love and I long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus, my beloved. He cares for this people very, very much. But he also knows that when we're in conflict, we're not being who we're being called to be. You know, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We, he is our head, 
We have the mind of Christ. We are His body. The body is members of one another. And when we are at odds with one another, we're, we're dismembered. Uh, we, we are fragmented, and we're not enjoying the unity and the peace that is being called for. Thirdly, remember, uh, Philippi is not only under these sort of internal tensions, but it's also very much under external attack, external opposition. And what Paul is saying here is that it is very important in terms of your witness to the world and your ability to withstand this external opposition, it's important that you agree in the Lord. This is not just, oh, it would be nice <laughs> if we could agree in the Lord. Wouldn't that be so wonderful? No, it is imperative. And that's why Paul is using this strong language. He says, I urge you, I beseech you, if you like the older language. There's a, an entreaty here, agree in the Lord. And notice how far he's willing to go to, uh, to press this point. He is willing to call out specific people. Now, again, we, we read this as a letter in our Bible um, we talked about at the beginning that we probably should better understand this as a sermon. Uh, for one, it, it follows sort of more rhetorical principles, so it's not really a literary work as much as it is a, a rhetorical spoken work. Secondly, these were read aloud in front of everybody. I mean, they didn't have lots of copies of this. Not even everybody in the church had the ability to read. And so they would gather the folks together, and they'd be reading the letter, and they're going on, you know, my, my brothers, my sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, uh, my beloved. I beseech Euodia, and I beseech Syntyche. And all of a sudden, everybody's eyes go, whoop. Uh, and they go, oh, wait a minute, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, can you imagine just the moment where they are mentioned by name in a public gathering of this way? We don't know exactly what their conflict was. Folks must have known that. Uh, and, and it's interesting here what Paul doesn't say. Paul, Paul doesn't uh, go into the contours of the conflict. He never takes sides. He never says, you know, who should agree with who or, or who's right or who's wrong. He just simply says, be who you are. You, you are redeemed servants of the Lord. Notice he, he says they're his fellow laborers, his co-laborers, along with Clement and the other fellow workers. Their names are written in the book of life. This isn't a salvation issue uh, for these two women. This is, this is a be-who-you-are moment. You, you're redeemed. You're bought. You're part of the family of God. You're part of the body of Christ. Agree in the Lord. And I care enough about you, Paul says, to name you by name in a very uncomfortable and even awkward way. There's something just to stop and to think about here uh, with regards to conflict. Again, I, you know, I don't know what nature of conflict you are involved in, uh, and understand that it doesn't necessarily mean that you are 
openly at odds with someone, we can also be in conflict when we begin to despise another's way of thinking in our heart. We can also be in conflict when we're harboring bitterness uh, against somebody else. But Paul is saying there is something really important at stake. I love you. This is not who you are. It's really, really important uh, for your standing strong for the gospel. Uh, Pay attention to this conflict because it can get even the best of you. Even people like Euodia and Syntyche, uh, these folks who have co-labored with me, these women who have co-labored with me in a very real way. I think you know, you know, among the ex-evangelicals, you know, a big reason for their ex uh, is what they see in the church. It's the conflict uh, between believers. It's the ugliness that happens within the body over and over and over again. Folks will say, I am not in church, not because I don't believe in Jesus. I actually believe in Jesus. I want to follow him but I can't stand his followers. I, I, can't, I can't put up with these folks who are constantly at conflict. They, they can't come together and agree in the Lord. And Paul says, this is so important. Make this purpose a unifying purpose that you are uh, united, in the, united in the Lord. Now, Let's note that Paul doesn't just say, let your brains go out of your body and, you know, whatever somebody else says, agree in that. This is the same Paul who earlier in chapter 3 was saying, watch out for the dogs, the wrongdoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. I mean, Paul had a very clear sense of right and wrong, and so that's why Paul gives us then this path Uh, this path of transformational practice that we are all to do. Did you see there that this is something for the whole church to care about? You know, Paul says, my true companion. Some people don't know exactly, well, nobody knows exactly who that was. Some people think it was a very specific person. Some people think it's a way that Paul was referring to the church as a whole. But he's saying this is something, if you see people in conflict, it's something for the whole church to come around and to deal with. So how do we deal with it? Well, we deal with it with these transformational practices as Paul talks about them. I want to just mention two things here, uh, ponder and pray. Uh, Ponder. You look at verses... you know, look at verse, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice, verse 4. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Some of you are familiar with translations that say, let your gentleness uh, be known to everyone. It's a word that means sort of magnanimity. Uh, there is a standard, as we're going to talk about in just a minute, uh, but there is a gracious way in which we hold that standard. And, and Paul says this, this is what is to mark the church, uh, that there is a real engagement with the person on the other side, not necessarily just the idea. 
You know, we're not out just to win battles, but we're out to win hearts, and we're out to win our sisters and our brothers. And that's the idea that Paul gives uh, with regards to reasonableness. And then in verse 8, he sort of expands on that, and he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything of excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul says, in order for us to engage the conflict that we are having, the disunity that we have in our body, we have to think about the one thing that unifies us. And that can be summed up in, in, in the person of Jesus. I mean, that was the whole point in chapter 2, right? Paul says, have this mind in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. Let each of you not consider his own interests as being the most important, but look also to the interests of others. Consider others. Paul is always using this language of considering, think about. Uh, there is a real application of the mind to the truths, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, all of these things, Paul is saying, allow these things to fill your mind, and then your, your actions will begin to follow that. Jesus says a very similar thing, doesn't he? Uh, if you remember in Matthew chapter 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. So Jesus you know, says some of these very same things. What's the very next thing or what's the basis of that? Does anybody remember? He says, don't be anxious about your life. Consider. Consider the lilies of the field. They neither spin nor whatever they else do, you know, and yet they're clothed in all their beauty. You know, consider the birds of the heaven, you know, they, they, they don't store up, they don't think about those, you know, all, you know, they're not anxious about where their future is going to come from, but the Lord cares for them. Jesus, in a very similar way, is saying, look at Revelation. You can even start with general revelation, see the order, see the beauty, uh, and then rest in that. Our, our minds, what we fill our minds with, leads us into a place of rest. Now, again, I think we, we can recognize this, we can see this, and it would be easy uh, at this part to, or at this point, to take a lot of pot shots, uh, you know, against what we fill our minds with, whether it's through media or social media or all those things, and you know the evidence. I mean, it's, this is not conjecture. I mean, it is, it is scientific proven fact you know, that your social media directly is related to your anxiety. Uh, but I'm not here to, uh, to make you feel guilty. I, I'm, what, what the scriptures are saying is there's a better way. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything be excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Somewhere along the way, I, there's a little mnemonic device, uh, and it's a NIV mnemonic device, not an ESV mnemonic device. But uh, what does the tuner play? T-N-R, true, noble, right, 
P-L-A, pure, lovely, admirable. You know, what is, what is the tuner playing in your mind, in your heart? You know, is this what is filling you? Because if it is, you're going to be led more into a place of peace. If the tuner is playing, you know, FOMO, what are you missing out on? If the tuner is playing violence and um, you know, uh, uh, unrest, if the tuner is playing all these other things, well, that's the direction in which you're going to be led to. And Paul is saying, you, you are in conflict. So one of the things that's really important is that Paul is specifically here talking about interpersonal conflict. And he's saying, you have anxieties that are leading you to this interpersonal conflict. You're, you're maybe afraid that your life is not going to measure up. You're afraid that, uh, that this person is going to be right and you're going to be wrong. You, you need to watch where your thoughts go. You need to bring them back. You know, Paul says, we demolish every stronghold, all the ideas, he says in Colossians 2, and we take them captive in Christ. You need to bring them back into the realities that the Lord loves you and died for you, that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That's why Paul gives this high Christology at the very center uh, of the book of Philippians. He's saying, here is the heart that you live out of. Bring all your anxieties into this. You know, allow this to be the tune that is played in your mind. And, and watch how your heart changes. It's not a matter of focusing on the anxiety and getting rid of the anxiety. It's a matter of focusing on Christ and allowing Him to fill us. It's the expulsive power of a new affection, uh, as one writer said. It's a love that subsumes all other loves. And, and then he says... You know, part of that practice will be to pray by everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, we, we know that we pray, but what is interesting about Paul's statement here is the prayer with thanksgiving in context of our requests. Uh, Paul is saying, as, as our hearts and minds are changed, we no longer are focused primarily or solely or overwhelmingly on what we do not have, but we are invited to recognize the things that we have been given, which are ultimate things, right? I mean, the most important thing any of you can know today is what happens to you after you die. Like when you cease to exist, like if you have that, you've got the trump card. Everybody else, the world can lay out all their cards, but you have got the card that beats every other card. Go ahead, kill me. I know where I'm going. To live is Christ. To die is gain, Paul says. It is the ultimate peace. And so Paul says, let that change your prayers. You know, bring your prayers with thanksgiving. Lord, 
I don't know what's going on in this area of my life. I don't understand it. I love my kids. I, I want to see them walking in the Lord. But I do know this. You are good. You are sovereign. And I thank you for that. You know, as we, as we bring the truths of what we know about God into the struggle of where our life are, it, it transforms our hearts and our minds. One writer says this, absence of thanksgiving to God in prayer turns off the power in prayer. Without thanksgiving, prayer becomes merely a way of complaining to God about all the bad things that are or might be happening. So again, don't hear that as condemnation. Hear that as invitation. You know, Paul is saying there, there is way more that we here in this room today have to be thankful about than we have to be uh, subterfuged by. You know, we, we have way more to be thankful about. Let those things infiltrate our hearts and our minds. Let those be the transformative practices. And then notice the promises uh, that follows this. Uh, Paul says, as we think about these things, and again, you know, there's this real, this real uh, tension, connection. Connection's probably a better way to put it. There's this connection between our hearts and our minds. The peace of God, verse 7 which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we think, you know, this peace is just, is it the eagles? I've got that peaceful, easy feeling. Uh, did I get that right? Um, yes? Yeah, okay, yes, I got that right. Uh, so, you know, we, we think about this peace as something that we just feel. It comes over us, and, you know, it's like a warm bath on a cold day. And, and it's not anything less than that. I mean, there is, that's part of it, but it's so much more than that. It, there, there is a real activity that Paul is pointing us to, and he's promising us in the Lord. I love this picture that Paul gives us here and just how it gets played out. Paul is, again, writing to Philippi. It's a Roman colony, a lot of ex-soldiers there, right? And so when he's talking about this peace of Christ guarding our hearts and minds, he's using language that they understand. Incidentally, you know, the list in verse 8, whatever's true, noble, right, honorable, pure, lovely, those are words that, that Roman citizens, Roman soldiers would understand. But now he says that the peace of Christ is going to guard your heart. Now, the guarding is not passive, and, and soldiers know this. Like, if you are going to be on guard duty, you are awake, you are alert, you are, are walking in your sentry post, you are looking for enemies, you are calling them out. And what Paul is saying is this is the activity as we find ourselves wrapped in Christ, resting in Christ, in his finished work, the reality is, is that this 
peace, this shalom, takes up an active guard in your heart. It's not just a feeling that you have, but it is a, a work at war, as it were, within you, against the world, against the flesh, against the devil. This peace is going to work on your behalf. Here, here's how one writer puts it. This is a picture of a besieged citadel. It is the castle of the mind of the Christian. And your castle, your mind, Christian, is garrisoned strongly. Its walls are constantly patrolled. Its sentries never sleep at their posts. The troops are the very household guards of the king of kings. They march behind the standard of the peace of God. What a great picture that is. Are you anxious? You know, Paul is saying, are, are you in conflict? You're, you're warring because you're forgetting who's at guard in the citadel of your mind. You're forgetting like, the, the extraordinary lengths that the spirit of peace is going to to defend your castle. I mean, that is such great news. It's interesting here how Paul, you know, started with the interpersonal, right, the conflict that Euodia and Syntyche were having, and how that was coming out of this sense of anxiety, the sense of all of these different things. And he is moving now to the intrapersonal. And he's saying there's a real relation between those two. What happens inside of us, the intrapersonal, you know, what we think about, what we dwell in, what we allow to fill us is going to very much make a difference in the interpersonal. Here's the best news of all. I love saving the best for last. The best for last is this. Not only is, uh, you know, the spirit at work in the garrison of our mind, in the, in the citadel there, uh, defending us. But we, as children of God, are inside safely in the presence of the very King of Kings himself. You notice how Paul says that here? He, he says, you know, the Lord is at hand. That's not like a warning. He's not using that as, you know, a scare tactic. You better get your act together. The Lord is at hand. No, he's saying, remember, the Lord is at hand. Uh, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That's that's the promise. You know, so Matyer, who I quoted a little bit uh, earlier, he says, Meanwhile, inside the citadel, hearts and thoughts alike are kept in quietness, for their companion is the king himself, the God of peace, who is with them. What a beautiful picture. As we engage this life, we, we have hearts and minds protected by the Spirit who is at work, and inside, inside, we're enjoying communion with the King of Kings himself, the one who says, I love you. I've given myself to die for you. I did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made myself nothing in order that we could have this fellowship. 
I think of Jesus' words at the end of John 17, you know, his high priestly prayer. You see so much of these uh, themes that Paul is expounding here in Philippians. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they will all be one. That they would have this unity of heart and mind and soul. Uh, Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's it's who we are, and and it's what our purpose is. The glory you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world would know that you sent me, and, and you love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am, may be with me where I am to see the glory, uh, my glory that you have given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Brothers and sisters, you have great and precious promises in the Lord. And so when Paul says, agree in the Lord, that's not hard. Where else would we want to be? But in the Lord who has drawn us into himself and brought us into the very life of the Trinity takes up residence with us, fights for us. Do not be anxious for anything because I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do you believe this? Is this your resting place? If it's not, you know, there is an invitation here. If it is and and you are having trouble remembering, you know, Paul says, consider Think about these things. Let your mind go in these directions. Do whatever it takes. Press on. Take hold. Because Christ has taken hold of you. But know, above all, that Jesus is the true, the noble, the right. The pure, the lovely, the admirable. He is the one who is excellent and praiseworthy. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for just the gracious way it invites us into the life uh, that you have given for us, the life that you have taken up in your resurrection. Father, we, we have so much hope, hope that the world longs for. Father, we pray that you would help us in being uh, faithful to come before you and to rest in the fact that you are our Lord and our King, that you are our salvation, our hearer, uh, that your grace has reached out for us. Father, I, I do pray for those this morning in particular who find themselves in conflict. May they give up the battle of, of proving themselves right. May they rest in your rightness alone. I pray for those who are overwhelmed with anxiety, 
having a hard time finding thanksgiving in this life, Lord, I, I ask that you would remind them again uh, that you know them, that you love them, that you have ultimate power and control to, to deal with the things of their lives. May they find their rest in you. Father, we love you. We're here as your people in Jesus' name. Amen.